Welcome to the Circle Stories podcast. In this podcast, we aim to explore the stories within, between, and around the various circles we inhabit in our lives. Okay. Hello, Lewis. Hello. How you doing, Carl? Hey. Nice to see you. Uh, you're gonna be my guest today on my podcast. Um, I like to uh, I like to start things out with a, a check in. And yeah. so if you uh, if you have a high and low from the past week that would be that you'd want to share with us, that would be well. Great. I've been like a lot of people watching the uh, election aftermath of the election and stuff like that, and that's provided me some for some highs and also some lows, I guess. But uh, most of the time, I've been just spending my time with the ordinary things, reading, and I have uh, tended some plants around here that are coming to a close with fall, and I, I have a few, uh, they let me plant some flowers and stuff, which I enjoy, and uh, so I've been gathering, the, gathering the, those in for winter and stuff like that. But. Good. And, you know, growing up, we're in a pandemic right now. The 1918 pandemic. Do you remember yeah. your parents and your grandparents talking about? Well, that? of course, I wasn't living at that time, but right. uh, my parents were, and uh, you know, older people in the community, and I heard them talk about it, uh, and I understand it was quite, uh, quite something. Uh, probably they were suffering as much as we, and they didn't have the communications we had, so they didn't know how widespread everything it was. But I've heard them talk about helping each other and especially taking food to each other. When a family was sick, they would probably not go in the house. They would just put stuff on, knock on the door and put stuff on the porch right? and let them get it, you know. And uh, they would perform other tasks that were essential, like getting wood in for them and drawing water and, you know, if they were not uh, not able. So, But yeah. not, not your immediate family, like your aunts and uncles? I don't remember any, they're talking about any immediate family dying from it. Uh, I, I don't think they did. But they might have had it and, yeah. and, and lived through it. And of course, a lot of people did get over it. Right. Everybody right. didn't die. Right. But it was surely penetrating at the time. And I think they said it lost a total of about a million people over a couple of years, didn't it? Right, right. Something like that. Yeah. It was It was bad. Yeah. This is bad too, but uh, I guess we got more ways to cope with it. Yeah, and you lived in in rural. I, I lived in a rural area, Wake County, out of Raleigh. Okay. And uh, we were tenant farmers. My dad farmed on shares, and uh, all of us children, as soon as we were old enough, took part in the farming. That was just expected. What kind of crops did you? Well, we had uh, corn, cotton, tobacco. Food crops, we always had a big garden. Mm-hmm. In fact, Daddy sold vegetables. We grew enough to feed ourselves, but he depended on uh, selling the extra to get a little money coming in in the summertime. That How was, early were you out in the fields? What? How early were you out in the fields? Well, we usually, Daddy's philosophy was work from sunrise to sunset. But at what age did you start out there? Oh. Weeding the garden. Oh, I it. don't know about that. <laughs> I would say... As soon as I could hold a hoe or tell the weeds from what we were trying to protect, I'd say about eight or nine, but uh, about as long as I can remember, really. Sure. Mm-hmm. And then you were also had some livestock? 
we had a couple of cows that we milked and uh, also had chickens and pigs, which contributed to the food supply. For the family, but not for the family. You wouldn't have sold any of that. You would have... No, actually, they had to sold a little bit of meat when uh, you killed pigs, mm. uh, but not much. And back then, you didn't have to go through the licensing thing to sell meat that you would today. Right. Which probably was not a good thing, but he sold a little bit of the things we didn't like, like the liver and the pig feet and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. You know? But uh, yeah. And how how big is your family? We had, Mama had 11 children all together. Two of them died early on in, in pretty much infancy. One, one was an infant about three months old. The other was about four. And uh, I don't remember much about those. I do remember my brother a little bit, but hardly any. And uh, But there were nine of us that grew up as a family, nine children, and a pretty big family. And then you'd work the farm until you got jobs off of it, or? Well, I worked the farm uh, all the time till we got what did we call caught up, and then we could go to a neighbor and work with them. And uh, I like that because I get a little money. You know, basically, we didn't get caught up that much, but we would some. And uh, I, when I got a little older, I would get some jobs like helping with a carpenter jobs and mm-hmm. stuff like that, besides the job. And, then I left home to go to school at 18, and uh, then I came back as someone kept on the farm for a couple of years, to, well, more than that, uh, four years during college, and also two years I worked as a teacher, which I had summers off, and I had to do something. So I'd go home and live and either work on the farm or work like us, we call it public work, you know, building. One time I worked, one summer I worked tearing down buildings in Raleigh, state government was expanding and they were tearing down a lot of old residences and it was dusty and dirty and hot and it was not a good summer but uh you know got a little money made some money that was yeah. the name of the game yeah getting a little money were, were you the first year family to go to college or? yes i was sure was and uh the way i went is i didn't it wasn't talked about in our family much and uh there was a high school teacher that uh, I had for social studies. He was also the coach, and I'd played football my senior year. And uh, he kept me one day after school and uh, wanted to talk to him about going to college, and I told him I wasn't planning to go. And uh, so he gave me the old football talk, uh, called me a coward and yellow belly and everything else, you know, like football coaches can. <laughs> and uh, But I still wouldn't even go to college, so because uh, I didn't have the money, I mean, I was the oldest boy. I had one older sister, mm-hmm. but I went to work with my uncle, who was a carpenter, and I, he was going to teach. He was a, an accomplished carpenter, and so he was going to teach me the carpenter's trade. And so I worked with him six weeks, and I cut my thumb off, and that was the end of my carpentering. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and I got a little bit of insurance money mm. from the fact that the saw didn't have a uh, guard. The guard was guard on there. And it belonged to the company, so they were liable. But uh, I got a little bit of money out of that and used that to start the college. We didn't even talk about it in the family much. Well, at all, I guess. I saw an ad in the paper one Sunday that Campbell College, a junior college, was still accepting applicants. And so I got on my old car, which I had bought just a few weeks earlier, and uh, went to Raleigh and got on the bus and went to Bush Creek and registered for classes and came back and told them what I'd done. 
and they just had a little trouble wondering why I wanted to go to college because it was not all that usual for a lot of people, especially the boys. Uh, a lot of them didn't even finish high school. The girls tended to finish high school more than boys. Hmm. But uh, anyway, they said, "Why you want to go to college? You you got a good you got good grades in high school." But anyway, they were okay with it. They didn't try to block me or anything. But and bless their hearts, they always gave me a hundred percent support. But uh, they just didn't quite understand what was going on. So I went to Campbell two years and then transferred to Wake Forest and then worked for oh four years, I guess, and went and got my master's at. Uh, East Carolina, but uh, I got that in summers. I take my vacation time and a little bit more, and it took me five summers to get my master's. So that's sort of, in a nutshell, was my education. Well, let's back up a second because I, I like uh, early American metal. What kind of car was that first car? It was a forty-two Studebaker. Studebaker. My dad had a Studebaker. Yeah, this was a little. Uh, in the 50s, I think, 53. Well, that was a 42, the year they stopped making these Studebakers. They made a oh. few, but they but stopped making, one. well, they made, they stopped making for a while. They, they resumed later. Oh, okay. But all their efforts, as other cars did, they went to the war effort. Oh, okay. You know, we were in the midst of a war, which had broken out in 41. Right, right. And uh, so, yeah, so it was. A 42 Studebaker. 42 Studebaker, and it was. Uh, Two-seater? It was a two-seater. It wasn't much of a car, but I remember I paid $175 for it. So I guess I got my money out of it. And it got you around, right? Yeah, for a while. And <laughs> well, most of the time, I'll have to say, I, I'm not a real good mechanic, but I learned some things. I had to later on when I, me and my buddy would go down to White Lake on weekends sometime to see our girlfriends who lived nearby. I'd fill it up with gas and buy a two-gallon can of uh, reconstituted oil from Montgomery Ward. It would take almost a two-gallon can of oil to make me through the weekend. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure it wasn't environmentally uh, good. You could look out your rearview mirror and see blue smoke <laughs> coming out, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, uh, burning that oil, huh? Burning that oil. So I didn't drive it much after I started school. I mean, I didn't take it to school with me because it I just drove it some when I came home on the weekends. You didn't take it to Wake Forest? No, no. Or East Carolina? It had, it had given out by that time. Oh, okay. Yeah, but it was a shooter Becca. What would they have done between 42 and when they restarted them? What would they have done for parts during that time? You just couldn't get them? Or you took I, them off other cars? And I don't remember. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't know. I didn't do much rehabilitation to my car. I kind of... You know, you could fix a lot of things with a pair of pliers and a screwdriver. There you go. And maybe a piece of wire. Yeah, they were much simpler <laughs> then. That's true. And uh, I probably had to buy something, but I didn't do any major stuff. And that concludes this episode of Car Talk. I'd like to read to you a poem by Lewis. He notes that he wrote this for his sister and spouse during their time dealing with a terminal illness. It is called Dedication. Dedication. They teach us so much, these two. He from his hospital bed, and she by his side day after day. Each, in tune with the other, finds creative ways to make I love you a constant atmosphere, rather than a spoken phrase only. How can those of us who would place limits on love understand the extent of theirs? How could we of lesser faith understand the depth of theirs? 
which is the source of their strength. This is their good work, to challenge us all to grow in love and faith, and to pass it on. Well, uh, I was, uh, see, I'd have been 12, I'd been 11 and 41 when the war broke out. Right. And uh, I do remember it was a total effort. They, uh, we kids got up old iron in the community and sold it. Mm. They were getting iron for the war effort. Right. We were encouraged to buy <clears throat> uh, savings bonds, which we didn't have much money, but they would sell savings bonds at school in books. I mean, you, you could buy with a dime or a quarter or something like that and paste them in your book and then you could catch them in for bonds when you got $25. Huh. So, you know, that was uh, something different because uh, in the last wars we've had, we general population don't even know we're at war. Mm-hmm. We don't feel like we're a part of it, but back then we did. And <clears throat> addition to what I mentioned, uh, things were rationed. And we didn't suffer much for the food items because we had our own food on the farm. But uh, we had to be careful about uh, tires for the truck. Dad had a truck by mm-hmm. then. And uh, gas, it was rationed, and sugar, coffee, just about anything you could mention was rationed. So we felt like we were part of the war effort for sure. Yeah. And, uh, How long did that last past 45 then? Well, the ration didn't last too long after 45. I don't know exactly. Hmm. But, uh, and of course, economic conditions improved. I mean, the war brought about some improvement in his uh, money situation because a lot of uh, people got war jobs that uh, they wouldn't have had otherwise. And also the government spent a lot of deficit spending. So it took a good while to get out of the Depression. It wasn't until uh, around the end of the 40s that we really got out of the Depression, I think. Now, some people probably got out there earlier than that, but we didn't feel it much in the level I worked in until about 48 or 49, somewhere along in there, and did about a small tractor. And, you know, as I mentioned, he had a, an old truck, and he traded trucks. And we began to see a little bit of uh, ease up in the economic situation by 48, 49, 50. And that would have been about the time you were heading out to college. It was. Was that also the time that the Korean conflict was gearing up? The Korean conflict was a little bit later because I'd gone through college and was teaching school when they called me to be chairman, about 53 or 54, somewhere along there. And uh, I did pass, and I thought all year they were going to call me, but they never did. They never did call me, so I didn't go. Hmm. Each county had a quota, and okay. if they had enough people with a quota, they didn't call anybody. Yeah. So the more people that volunteered, the less people they'd... That's right. That's right. I see. And a lot of people did volunteer because prior to that, especially the people who didn't have good paying jobs, they saw the Army as a way to, you know, get training and get somewhere. And it did help a lot of people. I mean, the ones that survived. You could learn a trade in the Army and then you could... The GI Bill GI after. Bill after. Yeah, sure yeah. did. That's also something we haven't done very well mm-hmm. the last three or four. I remember after the war... A good, good bit after, well, not immediately after, but they did start the GI Bill and farmers. They had uh, farm agents and farm classes that the younger farmers could go to. Uh, well, go to at any age, but uh, they didn't go to these classes, but the younger people did. They taught them different ways to farm that was more productive and stuff like that, you know. So it was, a, it was 
World War while, I think, for those who survived. But I'm still not in favor of war. I mean, Daddy always said war was a poor man's fight, a rich man's war and a poor man's fight. That's the way he put it. It was true back then and it's still, still true, true today. Yep. Yeah, unfortunately. So I would have gone if I'd have been called in, in Korea. I would have gone. But by the time we got to Vietnam, I would not have gone because I'd been somewhat radicalized and woken up a little bit. So I think I would have plotted some kind of alternative course if I'd been called to do it. Of course, I was getting just a bit old then to be called, but uh, I never was called. And so, but I, that's where I got my more definite anti-war ideas was during the Vietnam War. Mm. And uh, we had some really stirring anti-war songs and performers, Peter Paul and Mary, Pete Seeger, mm-hmm. come to mind. Uh, a whole bunch of people singing anti-war songs. Willie Guthrie, uh, before that he was singing protesting for the farmers. Also, most of those still relevant today. Mm-hmm. Good songs. Yeah, they are. I like Peter, Paul, and Mary. They, of course, they aren't performing today, but you can get them on television. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had a couple of their albums when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Along with John Denver. and. Uh... Oh, yeah, John Denver. <laughs> I don't remember John Denver especially singing protest songs, though, did No, you? no, you're right. He was pretty... Uh... Pretty standard. Uh, yeah. He, had a, he was a real good singer. And... Yeah, but you're right. I don't think he did. He I hate to see him end so soon. Yeah, yeah. But you would have been on your own by by Vietnam time, for sure. If you yeah, I would have been. Out, out of the house. And, and uh, were you in Wake, Wake County teaching? Well, I wasn't in Wake County teaching. Uh, I did graduate from Wake Forest, but I taught first up in the northwest, northeast section of the state in Northampton County. Oh, okay. Uh, it bordered Virginia and right. was almost to the coast. You've probably been to Northampton County. I have, yeah. And uh, then after that, I moved to Rocky Mount, not in the public school, but I was working for correctional institutions by then. Okay. And the main reason people ask me sometimes, or did back then, about did I have some burning desire to work for wayward youth and that kind of thing. And really, the reason I went there is they had a 12-month job for me. In public school, I only had a nine-month job. Mm. And they had a 12-month teaching job at boys' school in Rocky Mount. So, heck, I took that. So that's the way I got started in corrections. It's not a very lofty idea, but uh, <laughs> it's an idea of survival. Yeah. And I guess survival is the most basic calling of people. I've had some jobs in my life that would uh, qualify as yeah not lofty, but necessary. And, that's right. Yeah. Well, and you do what you have to do. Mm-hmm. After I worked at the training school at uh, Rocky Mount, I went to a place in the mid part of the state called Summercan. It was in uh, the Sandhill section, uh, which county it is now, mm-hmm. but it was a girls' school. It was a very peculiar situation for me because at that time I was 26, and uh, I went to work at the girls' school to be the school principal and assistant director there. And the director there was very efficient that she wasn't at all open to men coming and being part of the program. It ran a lot better when she had all women and all girls, and she didn't want any 26-year-old man coming and uh, contaminating all her girls, mm-hmm. which, you know, 
she let me know that right off hand. I mean, my tenure there was pretty tense for the first two years. Mm. But then the second two years was a little bit more relaxed. What did you teach there? Well, I was school principal. Oh, okay. And uh, I taught some, and mostly math, because I, most of the time I didn't have a lady teacher who wanted to teach math. Mm. But I like math up to a certain point. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not qualified for the higher math, but I do like math because it is so neat and odd, you know. So I taught math quite a bit and uh, was a school principal. I was in charge of their vocational training and also their uh, academic school. Actually, I was there and I met my wife there. She came as a uh, dietitian for the campus. Okay. She graduated from <clears throat> East Carolina also and uh, had a degree in home economics with an emphasis on food preparation. So she was qualified for that. And so she came there and we got to, we knew each other. And I, I wrote a paper later on and I said uh, something like this. Uh, when she came, I said, hi. Uh, no, she said, hi. And I said, wow. And two years later, we both said, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so that's about the way it went. <laughs> but that's when I left there because there was no place to, like I said, the atmosphere there was not very mm. uh, conducive to any kind of man-woman relations or anything like that. Sure. Speaking of man-woman relationships and the results thereof, Lewis gave me a short poem by one of his favorite poets, Khalil Gibran. This is four stanzas from his book, The Prophet. You are the bows from which your children as living arrows are sent forth. The archer sees the mark upon the path of the infinite, and he bends you with his might, that his arrows may go swift and far. Let your bending in the archer's hand be for gladness. For even as he loves the arrow that flies, so he loves also the bow that is stable. You said it was unusual for boys or, or, or men to graduate from high school, but the women usually did. Most of them in my circle. In your circle. Is that because they, they could pretty much get teaching and secretarial work? Well, they did wind up. And uh, I had uh, I was the only one of my kids who went to a full college, but I had three of my sisters who went to take secretarial work, mm -hmm. uh, usually nine months or something like that. And... Uh, it was a business school and they were taught, you know, secretarial type jobs and it was pretty easy for them to get it. All of them did get a job that went, so I guess it was pretty easy to get that. And then the men would, would usually find a trade to, to apprentice in. And... Yeah, that's right. Go to work and work your way up. Or some of them stayed on the farm. Mm -hmm. But that was likely to happen if the, if the dad had land. I mean... I don't know of any boys that were anxious to stay on the farm doing sharecropping. Right. There's no future in that. Never going to get ahead doing that. But I did have several people along my age, my classmates and younger and older, whose dad had pretty good sized farms and they stayed there and it was just expected and they did. And I, I think they were pretty successful with that. But My mom is one of 14 kids. Oh. And they, she grew up on a farm and was driving combine when she was 11. And mm -hmm. So uh, she's the 13th of 14, so. Uh, oh my, I've ridden a combine many miles. Not for, my dad didn't have a combine, but I would help the people down the road who had a combine. 
and they would uh, and had other farm equipment too. But I learned to drive a tractor there because Daddy didn't have a tractor that time, and uh, ride the combine, which you had to do back then to bag your stuff up. You don't do it anymore, but, right? Uh, right. And stuff like that. And my greatest, I was so proud when I learned to back a trailer. Mm. I mean, that that's was a really skill. Something. That's a skill. It is, and a lot of people don't know how to back a trailer yet. No. I'm not sure I do much at it because I hadn't. It'll probably come back to you. I hadn't kept the practice up by, you know, you cut the steering wheel the opposite direction you want to turn. Right. So, yeah, when I learned to back a trailer, I thought I was really something. Hey, that's, that is. Can something. you back a trailer? Not well. Well, I don't think I do it well, but. But I, given enough time and enough room. I, enough time to start on <laughs> Just start over. over a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's a matter of just doing it uh, mm -hmm. enough that you get used to it. But yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what um, What gives you hope these days? Where do you find hope in the world? It's not like a. This is a Pastor Nancy question, by the way. Yeah, I know it is. It's <laughs> also a man, a man question. Oh, is it? I'm sorry. Oh, that's right. Uh, I get hope in this young people. What we're talking about. Hope. You said it was a Mahan question, too. Well, Mahan always asks that question. Does he? Yeah. Well, I find hope in uh, young people, but uh, I also have some reservations about what young people face. I mean, they face a future that's so different than mine, I don't understand it, but that's not anything to them. I mean, they understand it, but I'm afraid things are changing so fast. <clears throat> We, not only our young people, but old people too, don't have really time to adjust to one thing before something else comes along. I was saying the young people have terrific challenges, and uh, if they're smart and work at it, they can make it. The ones will make it. But those who don't have the uh, home support, or who are not as good at learning as others, I'm afraid they're going to have a real time. Uh, because the jobs are getting so specialized and uh, also uh, robots and things are taking a lot of the work that ordinarily would go to people. And, uh, and you mentioned the pace of things is changing. It's the pace is changing so, so fast. much. I mean, I can look back in 15 years, I mean, things are so different than they were. And uh, But the young people can take that. I mean, they... They go with the flow, and uh, I kind of dropped out of uh, certain levels. I mean, I'm not a very technical person, but I know enough to get by, and uh, I guess I do all right, but uh, I don't do a lot of these fancy communications and all. And nobody writes letters anymore. Maybe a Christmas card or something like that. Maybe, yeah. But when is the last time you got a letter? High school, I think. Yeah. <laughs> it's been 40 years. That's right, and uh, of course I don't. You know that's that's okay, and uh, I don't expect people that are used to texting and much shorter uh, things. I don't expect them to sit and write a letter. But I'm just saying that to me it was you know it was comforting to get a letter once in a while. Mm -hmm. You wrote to your sweetheart, waited a week to get a reply. Right, and uh, sometimes she said, "Don't write to me anymore," <laughs> and so. <laughs> Or whatever you know, but that was. But it took you a week to get that, and you had that week of hope, didn't you? That's right. You had a week to hope. Uh, <laughs> so, 
it's, it's a lot different. It sure is. Mm-hmm. It's such a fast pace, you know. It is. And I'm afraid uh, we as a country don't introvert much. We don't take things in and think them over. We just sort of go with the flow and there's so much. Everybody has access. Well, I say everybody, just about everybody has access. So everybody's opinion is out there. And I can't understand why some people form the opinions they have, but it's not for me to understand. I mean, I don't have to understand why they do, but I'm curious to know how in the world they do it. And a lot of times it's about what they read on social media right? and what they are willing to take in. You, t- you take in everything in your mind. And, uh, but you also talk about the pace of things and we're bombarded yeah. with that information. We are. But like you said, we don't have time to sit with it and, and contemplate and filter and because by the time we, we're starting to do that, we got mm-hmm. something else coming in. And progress is fine, but I do think for each layer of progress, there's some things we ought to keep, you know? That's the way we build up a, a legacy in our memories and that kind of thing. But things come so fast and go so fast. I mean, uh, young people can have, oh, they got 500 friends. The truth is they probably don't have any friends. They might have one or two. Closer to five, probably. Probably, yeah. 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 But uh, a friend is someone who returns your tweets and that kind of thing. Or you think they would. Right. And uh, that seemed kind of shallow to me. But then again, I'm 90 years old. Well. So... But I do have some hope in the young people because uh, they're very smart, usually. They've had access to a lot of different learning that I didn't have and you you didn't have as much. And uh, so I have some hope in that. And I try to stay hopeful all the time because sometimes I find it a little bit hard to be hopeful. I'm struggling with how to talk to people in 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 a way that will affect positive change mm-hmm. um, we are so polarized we are so bombarded with our own yeah beliefs in echo chamber I'm, I'm reaching out to people I'm I'm trying to figure out how to how to talk in such a way that that we can find some common ground to me you. too and that's one of the things I'm not hopeful about I mean I have to be hopeful in the end we will but right now I don't see it and I can remember I don't know if you do or not, but I can remember we've always had political division as long as we've had a country, sure. and that's part of the process. I understand that. But in the last 20 or more years, it's got to be if if you disagree with somebody, you also feel free to demonize them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're not even your kind of people. They're, you know, they're just so foreign, and we just operate in silos and don't communicate and I think that's the biggest task we have is to get so we can talk to people that we differ with and don't demonize them I mean luckily I've had I remember one time in a church discussion group to mess with it was a Wednesday night informal group and he was saying you know we like for people to always agree with us and I raised my hand and he said Lewis, you like for people to disagree with you? I said, well, I, if they disagree, I like for them to say so, and we, we'll just talk about it and find that kind of, you know, uplifting. And they don't have to come to my view. It's a shame how we've got so we we can't cooperate on anything much. And I think that's the biggest task we've got 
and the government can't do it. And uh, it's an individual thing. We've got to, and I'm guilty of that some. I mean, I, I, I try not to be, but I am guilty of uh, sort of demonizing some people who have such ideas different than mine. What I most struggle with is uh, the lack of, so when I talk about finding common ground, I struggle with the fact that we can't agree on a baseline. I'm trying to find a baseline of, so we can start at somewhere and build. Yeah. And it seems like that's increasingly harder to find. And I just. Well, I think we're all searching for some answers. And I do think the first place to start is with ourselves. I mean, I say I'm subject to be uh, deprecating to others that I don't agree with, especially during this election season. But I tell myself, Lewis, you ought not to do that. But I think if enough of us did that for a while, we might see that there is some things, you know, but it's going to be hard. And uh, I, I think social media is uh, a lot to blame for that. It's so like a boiling pot. Mm. You never know what's beneath that boiling. And uh, another thing that we've just got to come to, and I, I get a little hope in this, for hundreds of years we've been living with that sin of slavery and stuff like that. And we have got to face it in a constructive way. And I think we may be a little bit, a little bit, but not much, uh, after the Floyd killing. And and before that, we had a sluice of the last 10 years. We've had, you know, always Trayvon Martin on up. Uh, we'd have a little breakouts of demonstrations, all but they'd peter out in a week or so. But the Floyd thing took hold, and I think it has some promise that some governments uh, who are now looking at the way they fund things. I, I'm not in favor of defunding the police, but I am in favor of redirecting some of the funds to uh, have something besides guns and tasers, but maybe they need tasers instead of guns. But I think we might have made a little bit of turn there, but there's so many things that we're not even aware. I mean, I talked to some people, that it's some in my own family who just don't have any idea about what's wrong. We treat the black people okay. Uh, we don't, well, the truth is we don't. There's so many hidden things, I mean. And those are coming to the light now, which is- They are, which is this uh, pandemic helped that. Yeah. It helped pull back the scab. Yeah. So I'm both anxious and hopeful about that. Hopeful that we'll not let this thing go by without responding. If we do, I think we're in trouble. And uh, and I, I'm I'm with you on the youth. I'm I'm looking towards the youth to help us not forget that and to yeah. have some movement on that. And of course, uh, I find youth, and you do too. I bet youth are not as prejudiced as we are. They they're okay, but that's not that's just one part of it. The uh, systemic. Uh, things are still there, right? And uh, but the youth are pretty good at. Uh, it doesn't really make much difference to most of the youth I know whether someone's black or not. They, and that's good. That's very really good. I don't have kids, but I'm uh, encouraged by my generation's yeah. kids. Yeah, that they're raising, and uh, I yeah. think our my generation did a good job of bringing up the next group uh, to be more aware of mm -hmm. of those issues. I hope so. I hope so, and. Uh, but it's going to be rough. It's not going to be a, right. a walk in the park. And I, 
I'm thinking that we might have some of this violence soon after the election uh, finally come to a close. Uh, I hope I'm wrong. Uh, but, you're uh, not the only one I've heard say right. something like that. So, but I think, uh, yeah, there's some people just waiting to see how things turn out and see who keeps the pot boiling. And there are people keeping the pot boiling. So, this next poem is a Lewis Parish original. It's called "Wisdom and Knowledge." Wisdom and Knowledge. Wisdom and knowledge are related, yet how different they are. Knowledge prides itself for how much it knows. Wisdom is humbled by how much it needs to learn. For making so many things, knowledge is hailed as king. Wisdom wanders lonely on the street, drawing sparse attention. Knowledge sings its siren song. Quick, quick, come see what's new. Wisdom says, let's consider value. Knowledge deals in present happiness. To that, Wisdom adds lasting joy. Knowledge asks the question, Can we? Wisdom asks, Should we? Great things happen when they consult. Knowledge says that it can save the planet. Wisdom says, There's a chance, but only if we work together. Knowledge built the bomb. Wisdom wept. The poem has a caveat, um, the fourth line of the first stanza is um, attributed to William Cowper. Pastor, uh, Pastor Missy wants to know uh, what you would tell your 18-year-old self. What, My 18-year-old self? Yeah, what would you tell? What, what advice would you give your 18-year-old self? Okay. I would say to my 18-year-old self, if I were wise, which I wasn't at 18, take advantage of all your opportunities little and, and big, because I know in my lifetime I've let some opportunities go by. So that's the first thing. I would say to my 18-year-old self that I need to be patient to get a little money and standing in order to do something, you know, to fulfill my desires and that kind of thing. Seize the opportunities and be patient. Yeah, that's, that's right. right. Have you, it's a hard mix for an 18-year-old, I think. Have your eye on the opportunity, but notice you're, you're being patient to work toward it, you know. And, of course, I'd have to tell my 18-year-old uh, self <clears throat> that wars are not worth it, because at 18, I didn't know that. It took me longer than that to find that out. So I would be uh, less of a peacemaker at 18 than I try to be now. So, uh, I don't know. I think I've done fairly well, but... Uh, I you think your 18-year-old self would be proud of Yeah, I think my 18-year-old self would be fairly satisfied with where I've come. Uh, I, I look back and I see some things that, uh, well, most of the things I thought were pretty bad have worked out well. I mean, there was a time or two I lost a girlfriend, and I thought the end of the world was right around the corner. Well, it <laughs> turned out that when I did marry, oh, I couldn't have done any better. I mean, she was just one of the only things she died early. That's mm. not a thing. Yeah. But as far as being a good person, she was, and a good mother, she was. And so those things, they were, I thought it was terrible at the time, but they worked out. So I guess it's one of the things I would tell my 18-year-old self, try to realize that everything like that is not the end. There are other chapters. I'm sure there are other things I can't think of right now, but uh, I've been fairly... Uh, well, been fairly consistent in trying to 
I call myself a seeker. I've never been quite satisfied with where I am uh, spiritually or denominationally. I started out as a Southern Baptist. I was born into that. Then I even had reservations when I was fairly young about that. But uh, as I got older, those reservations increased and along about the 70s, uh, 75, somewhere along that when it actually the more conservative part seemed to take over our convention. I got very dissatisfied and uh, then I moved to churches that belonged to the Cooperative Baptist, which was a little less it's uh, sharp-edged, and that lasted for a while. And then I got dissatisfied with that. Uh, mostly, I mean, I belonged to a, fairly, a good church here in Asheville, which I liked, and went there about a dozen years or more. But uh, they had a, we had a pretty big blow-up over sexual identification. Mm-hmm. And so that put me out of there. I, I couldn't stay there comfortably. So I wound up at Circle of Mercy. And... Uh, so far, I mean, I've been all right. I mean, as far as they give me room to to be a seeker and seek our own way. I mean, I know I'm strange in many ways, but that's okay. Lewis just mentioned that he'd like to tell his 18-year-old self to seize opportunities. The next poem I'll share is A Dream Deferred by Langston Hughes. Maybe Lewis wishes his 18-year-old self had read this. A dream deferred. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or does it fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat? Or does it crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just hangs there like a heavy load. Or does it explode? When people talk about worshiping, well, you know, I feel very worshipful when I used to go out in my garden. Mm. And, uh, or even go out now, I use now, because I have some plants here, mostly flowers. I go out and plant some of these really unattractive seeds in the ground. And then a few months later, you go out and have a beautiful scene there. Or back when I was gardening, you'd plant seeds like string beans, and then go out after a while and just pull the most beautiful string beans and good stuff off, you know, and that's a miracle, and that's seeking. That's part of the way I worship. And uh, same thing is true about people. When when uh, I see a person who's really, well, I'm not trying to be judgmental because we're told not to do that, but I mean, somebody who's seemed to be really on the way to a more spiritual level themselves, uh, it, it makes me want to, kind of go along and not that's kind of a tricky thing because sometimes people when they get to be what you might call spiritualists think those they've left behind are somehow less than they are or something and they mm-hmm. make it miserable my preacher used to have a he was a southern bachelor he was open to a lot of things he said to dwell above with the saints of love that would be glory but to dwell here below with the saints I know now that's another story mm-hmm. you know how people uh, that always know what's best for you, mm. and they try to tell you you ought to do so and so, and oh no, that gets that that don't move me. Uh, I'm too independent. It doesn't go along with your seeker, letting you seek your own path. But if you seek something and find that you like that, I mean, I don't accept things too quickly. I don't think. But once you examine them, you know, 
I'm reading a book now. I didn't bring it with me. But it's by Fareed Zakari. Hmm. Have you ever heard of him? From CNN, yeah. Yeah, CNN. And uh, his latest book is 10 Things After the Pandemic hmm. Society. And uh, I find him challenging. And I like to read challenging things like that. And uh, I'm about halfway through. Yeah, I like to hear more CNN, too. You mentioned you're reading a couple of books. Well, I'm reading that one, and uh, I'm reading one for our book club, which is just a love story, just because we chose it, and I got to, I need to read it if I'm going to stand in good with the book club. <laughs> but that's not a very challenging book. It's okay, but it's not very challenging. But uh, I like to read books that are you know, kind of breaking new soil. Mm. And some of the ones that come to mind are, uh, well, backing up, Khalil Gibran is one of my favorite sort of bedrock philosophers. The prophet. The prophet. And other words, too, but the prophet is the main thing. So I find that also... Uh, I had a reading from that for my wedding. You my, did? In my wedding ceremony, yeah. That is so great. One of the things I got in the... <laughs> I got yes. to put in the wedding. Was yeah. One of his... Uh, I forget which one now. I should, I should reread that book again. It was probably the one on uh, marriage. Could be. Was one on love. Love, yeah. He says... Love is not jealous, and love seeks not anything but to fulfill us. I mean, you know, you, you don't take from, well, I forgot how he puts it. Yeah. He puts things so well, yeah. And uh, there's a guy, I did jot down a couple of things that I do read right now, if I, but a fellow named Boyd wrote a couple of books about uh, love wins, and have you ever read, I forget his first name, Boyd's last name, Another book I read about a year, a few years back, was uh, the Myth of a Christian Nation, and I forgot who wrote that one. Right now, I had it written down to bring with me, but I didn't. I can look it up. But uh, the Myth of a Christian Nation, and uh, he just points out that you know we put ourselves forth as a Christian nation, and we really haven't been a Christian nation. Uh, when were we a Christian nation? Well, he goes into that a little bit, and it's a goal we work toward, but. Uh, I don't know if we ever want to be a Christian nation as well as a, as opposed to an accepting nation, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, some of the more special writings on homosexuality and that kind of thing, they're not the deepest theological thing. They're not on the level of Ken and uh, Mahan, which they can read these deep theological things, but I do like to read things that have a... Uh, I used to be kind of stirred by Walter Wink, Mm. And uh, a couple others along about that time, they were, they were so uh, sort of trailblazers in a lot of ways. But I'm certainly not the, in my spiritual life. I'm not where I was 10 years ago or 15 years ago. And it's not that I deliberately decide that, but it's just that when I read something, oh, my, I can't think of names as well as I used to, but the one called A New Kind of Christianity. Mm. Uh, McDaniels, maybe? But... And you kind of, he points out some things that I don't accept all of it, but uh, he sets you to thinking about some things, you know? And uh, so, yeah, I, I have to be a seeker. I get, I guess I'm impatient, mm. but that's okay. That's one thing I like about the circle. It's uh, not a story you've heard 14 times. It's, you know, a new application yeah. of it. Yeah, the scripture might be familiar, but the take you get on it, it's going to be unique. And, mm -hmm. yeah. So it's kind of where I'm, I'm not much of a social demonstrator. I mean, I, I have taken part in some 
demonstrations, but I'm a little bit better at uh, sort of providing background and reading and expressions and that kind of thing. And I do think a lot about philosophy all that much. I got a couple of times I put some of the, my thoughts on paper. Mm-hmm. Don't mind sharing with you if you want to get to know me. Sure. I really like this uh, Langston Hughes, mm-hmm. A Dream Deferred. Are you familiar with that? Hey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I share that with young people a lot of times. About if you got a dream, follow that dream. Don't mm-hmm. let it get deferred. Because you know. Also, one time I well, a lot of times really, I got to think about wisdom and how it's practical. I mean, wisdom can be sort of not practical, but anyway, I wrote a little thing about wisdom and knowledge. I don't know what to say about that. Some people have thought it was pretty good. Uh, I think we have a lot of knowledge these days, and maybe not so much wisdom. That's uh, we're we're flooded with knowledge. Yeah, we've got knowledge about everything, but I'm not so sure we have a lot of wisdom. And then uh, one thing that I've, I think I've pretty much got as part of my everyday operation is it goes back to what you find hopeful. It's a positive look at uh, sort of wonder and awe about things, just maintaining a, a spirit of wonder about things. And all, and uh, even about marriage. Uh, and I'm afraid I didn't do this all the time when I was married and raising children and stuff like that. But uh, I did it a little bit. But just the wonder and awe of everything, the miracles, just for what it's worth. Here's a copy of uh, one of the Gabron things about children. Mm. I bet you read it a hundred times. No, I don't know about that. I need to read those again. That's just one paragraph from the people of the Arabs which I sure launched forward. Hmm. He is pretty wise about things. I see over the years, I've seen so many. LeBron says, don't try to make your children like you are. Give them room to be their own self. And uh, I think I had that somehow I was raising my kids, but not as much as I could have, I guess. Because, you know, they break rules. You need to set rules. And children do need rules to get along. But, uh, that's one thing. Another thing that I think is sort of defining what I am is sure about the depth of dedication of my sister to a husband who was dying of ALS. Mm. And uh, she just, uh, I mean, I share those with enough, and I don't think they're that good, but they sort of a little light on what I have been out of that oh, 15, 20 years ago, I guess. Well, thank you. You with them. I will read. I got other copies of them, so you don't. Oh, good. Thank you. What else we need to talk about? I'm uh, sure there are other things. Thank you for joining me. I think we're we're good. Uh, I I was supposed to ask you for a joke. A joke. If you got one. Well, (laughs) well, one that I made up the other day, and then somebody said they heard it on the radio. Uh Oh. And that sort of killed my spirit. I thought I'd done. What is the President-elect doing between now and January 20th. Hmm. He's biding his time. <laughs> One lot better, though, is uh, this truck driver, long-distance truck driver, stopped at his favorite restaurant. He stopped there almost every time he passed to get a, a good meal. And these three real rough motorcycle gang people came in, and they wanted to sit together at the stools, and he they asked him to move so they could sit together. And he said, no, he, he wasn't going to move. He was there first, and uh, the, he was going to keep his seat. So they 
one of them dragged him off his stool and stomped on him and hit him and you know he got up finally and went up to cashier and paid his bill and, and left and the three guys were laughing and joking and saying he sure wasn't much of a fighter was he and the guy behind the counter who could see out across the plate glass window to the parking lot said no he's not much of a fighter and he's not much of a truck driver I think because he just backed over three motorcycles in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty good. That's pretty. Thank you. He backed his rig over three motorcycles. <laughs> yeah. I call that getting even. Yeah. Yeah. That's one way to yeah. yeah. Well thank you so much. Well I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. For whatever it's worth. This is the last poem uh, Lewis shared with me. It's called Discovery. It's strange, beautiful flower. I haven't seen you before. I pass this way most every day, yet I haven't seen you before. Your well-developed petals show you've been in bloom some time. But I've passed you by until today. Really, the loss is mine. Thanks for listening. For more information on things you heard in the episode, please check out our show notes at circlestories.org. There you will also find archived episodes and can subscribe to, comment on, and review the podcast. Break music provided with permission by David Lamott. Find out more about David and browse his catalog at davidlamott.com. Show music, Will the Circle Be Unbroken? Music by Charles H. Gabriel arrangement by Randa Kirschbaum, and performed by Jennifer Wilson. Any sound effects used in the episode are attributed and used under Creative Commons license details available in the show notes. C.S. Lewis said, The next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are. <laughs>